It is such a wonderful experience to praise and worship our Father. And, uh, and again, this morning as I was standing there, and the songs that we were singing and the words that we, that we were confessing, it, uh, it just reminds me of, of the message for this morning. And uh, we are going to talk about the throne room of God, and it's part of our series about the tabernacle. But uh, what a wonderful, wonderful way to think about it. We were singing about into His holiness because He is holy, and that is exactly what it means, uh, or what his, his throne room means, is that His holiness is portrayed to you and I. So we're going to explore that this morning, but before we do that, let's just bow our hearts in prayer. Our Father, we come to you in the mighty name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And thank you, Father, that we can approach your throne this morning. And your word says that we can approach your throne of grace with boldness. And this morning we come to you in boldness. We're approaching your throne. Lord, we want to enter into the Holy of Holies. So that we can be in an intimate, intimate relationship with you. We ask you that you will guide us through your Holy Spirit this morning. God, that you will protect us. According to Zechariah 2 verse 5, that you will place a wall of fire around us to protect us from the attacks of the enemy. And thank you, Lord, that we can be in your presence this morning. And thank you that we can know you. And thank you that you love us and that you have loved us first. And therefore, we honor and praise you in the mighty name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, as I've mentioned, this morning we are going to continue to explore the tabernacle and the pattern that Father established for our salvation. And I gave you the last time we spoke, well, every time that we've spoken about this, this is the third, the third teaching in the series, and I've showed you this picture of what the tabernacle looked like. And there was a distinct purpose for this tabernacle, because when God told Moses to make this tabernacle, he says to him, he says, I want you to make this, and he gives him the dimensions, he tells him about everything, he says, as you have seen it on the mount." So in other words, Moses saw the tabernacle, but it was not a man-made tabernacle that he saw. He saw the tabernacle of God. And therefore, the picture that we have of the tabernacle and the description of we, that we have of the tabernacle is quite important to us because it, it depicts our process or our pattern for salvation. It is a description of who Yeshua is. It is a, is a description of who you and I are. And it is so important that we understand this, that, that we stand the, the pattern and the symbolism of this tabernacle, because a lot of the things that we read in the New Testament actually references the tabernacle of God. And do you remember when we, the first, the first teaching that we did, we, we started with Yeshua's words in John 14 verse 6, when He said that He is the way, the truth, and the life. And when He talks about the way, the truth, and the life, as we saw this, it is the entrance here to the tabernacle to the courtyard of the tabernacle, that was known as the way. Then we see the tent, and then in the first portion of that tent, that section over there, that was known as the holy place, and it was known as the truth. And then in the back portion of that tent is called the holy of holies, and that is called the life. So when Yeshua said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he was actually referencing the tabernacle, and he was pointing to himself as the living tabernacle of God. And that's what we see in the Word, that he is spoken about as the living tabernacle, the tabernacle not made by hands. Isn't that wonderful? So when we look at this and we, and we saw this, we, we have now entered from the first time we spoke about this, we entered through the door because Yeshua is the door. He says that to us, I am the door. And when we enter into the presence of Father, we cannot enter into the presence of Father unless we enter through the door, which is Yeshua, which is Jesus Christ. It's very simple. It's really, the, the word is actually very easy to understand if we just put in the effort to, to read it. So we have now entered into this area here. We have looked at the holy place. We have looked at all the furniture within the holy place. And when we talk about the furniture in the holy place, it was the golden lampstand. It was the golden incense altar. And it was the table of showbread. Then in the, in the second one, we looked at 
the, the portion in front here, how we, do we get there? How do we get to the truth? Is that we need to enter through Yeshua. We need to lay our lives down. That is the bronze of the brazen altar. And then we see the brazen laver. That was where we need to be washed, where we need to be cleaned, where we need to become holy. And that also depicts our baptism. But then we enter into the truth. And once we're in the truth and we understand the truth, we can now go forward and we can move into the Holy of Holies. And when we look at this process, we see the pattern and the process of salvation. That is what is depicted to us through the tabernacle. And the more we understand the tabernacle and the pattern that God has created through the tabernacle, the more we understand where we, supposed to, where we are supposed to be and how we need to walk in righteousness. Because it talks about our righteousness. And now we come to the final and the ultimate place of the tabernacle. The Holy of Holies. It is a very important place. It is the place where every believer wants to be because in the Holy of Holies we enter into the presence of our Father. And the entrance to the tabernacle, if you look at the whole tabernacle, you can see uh, put an arrow there. The entrance to the tabernacle always pointed to the east. Now, there's an important thing about this. So when you look at the tabernacle, it was pointing to the east. So when you worship God, you were facing the sun. So you were facing our Father. So you were facing God because He is our light. But when we look at the camp and when our Father told Moses how to set up camp when they, when they moved out of Egypt and they moved into the wilderness, He explained to, to Moses how they needed to set up the camp. And when we look at that whole process, we saw that the, that the tabernacle was placed in the center of Israel's camp. Why was it in the center? Because, because God needs to be the center of our lives. We need to place Him in the center of everything. So he was in the center of the camp, and then what we saw is that when Israel camped, they, they camped to the, to the east, to the west, to the north, and to the south. In four directions. That's how the camp was set up. But there's an interesting thing if you look at this. The camp of Dan was to the north. Well, it was a combination, so uh, three, three directions, and you will see that if you look at the camp, it was called the, uh, the camp of Dan, but there were, there were three of the tribes were with Dan. Three of the tribes were with Reuben, who was to the south. Three of the tribes were with Ephraim, who was to the west, and then the camp of Judah, who was to the east. The, three of the, of the tribes were with Judah. But when they were referenced and when they were talked about, it was talked about the camp of Dan, the camp of Reuben, the camp of Ephraim, and the camp of Judah. Now, there's a significant thing about this. When you look at this, and you look at the, and it was facing the entrance, the door to the, to the tabernacle, the entrance to the tabernacle faced Judah. The open area. And what was, who was opposite of Judah? It was Ephraim, the camp of Ephraim. And they were closed down because they were at the, at the western side of, of the camp. And as you can see here, as, as we saw this in the, in the picture, that was closed down. There was only one entrance, and that entrance was to the east on the side of where, where Judah was. So we see that the entrance gate towards Judah and the closed-off area was towards Ephraim. Now, I can tell you a lot of things about this. But this morning, I'm going to share two or three things with you about this. Because there is a significant thing that is happening here. And what is the significant thing that is happening here? When Israel was divided into two kingdoms, remember what happened? Israel wanted a king. They chose Saul. Well, God gave them Saul. And then what happened is then God chose his king. And his king was from the tribe of Judah. Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Not father's choice. Because the kingdom needed to come out of Judah. So, so what happened was, after David, Solomon, his son, became king. And because of all the, the defiled things that Solomon was busy with, God said to him, I am going to take the kingdom away from you. But because of my covenant that I have with your with your father David, I will not take it away while you are still the king. I'm going to take it away from your son. And then when Saul dies, Rehoboam becomes the king of, of Israel. But 
It wasn't that simple because there was a split in the kingdom. And we see that the kingdom is divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was known as Ephraim. And the southern kingdom was known as Judah, the two opposing tribes. Can you see what's happening here? God already told us this is going to happen when he told Moses to make the tabernacle. And how they were supposed to camp around the tabernacle. And then we see the other tribes were split between these two. So, so it was very important that we see this and, and how this actually happened. Now, what is interesting about this is that when the kingdoms were split, obviously Judah was in the south and, the, and Jerusalem is in the south. And the temple of God remained within Judah. There was no temple in the northern kingdom. So the open gate facing Judah tells us that the, that the temple was to remain within Judah. There's a reason for it. We'll come to that now. Now, what was interesting about Judah and, and, and Ephraim is that they continually opposed one another. They were continuously fighting one another. And, and you know, when I looked at this, Ephraim was closed off to God. But Judah was receptive. And why do I say this? We see this when Jeroboam takes over the northern kingdom. The first thing that he does is he is concerned that the people will move back into Judah and that they will go to the temple to go and worship God. So what does he do? He makes two golden calves. So that they have something to worship. So they opposed God. And, and to me, it's, it's like it's, it's depicting, depicting us as human beings. We're always in opposition to God and to His Word. It is only when we come to true belief that we are starting to open ourselves up to the kingdom of God, to Yeshua, to His Word. The second thing that I see here is that the door to the tabernacle faced Judah. And the Messiah was born of the tribe of Judah. In other words, the door to Father's presence came out of Judah because he is the door to life. He is the door to our everlasting life. He is the door into the presence of God. And that is Yeshua, who was born from, from Judah. And you know what was so amazing is that this was prophesied by Jacob when he blessed his son uh, or his sons just before his death. And we see this in Genesis 49 verse 10. And it says, he talks about the scepter. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. And if you look at that word scepter, and if you look at the meaning of that word scepter in, in the Hebrew, it actually talks about dominion, about power and authority. So what we can read in here is we can say, the scepter, the dominion, the power and the authority shall not depart from Judah. And all the kings of Israel, except for Saul, came from Judah. And then he says, nor a lawgiver between his feet until Shiloh come. And listen carefully to what he says. Unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Shiloh is not a place. It is a person. He talks about him. And now when we look at this whole process and we look at Shiloh, Shiloh was the name that was anonymous with the Messiah that was to come. And this is what he says. He says, the Messiah will come out of Judah. And that's exactly what happened. So the prophecy is there. And we see this clarified by Paul when he writes in his epistle to the congregation of the, of the Ephesians. And in Ephesians 1 verse 9 to 11, Paul writes this. He says, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he has purposed in himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, at the end of time when everything has, has been fulfilled, he says, he might gather together in all things in Christ. Let me just go back one slide quickly. What does he say? He says, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Isn't that the same, what we read in here? 
that in the dispensation of the fullness of time he might gather together in all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on, on earth even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. God had already decided this. He made this known to us from the beginning. And how do we see this? How do we experience this? When our eyes are starting to open up and we're starting to read the Word of God and the truth of His Word and we see the pattern that He has created for us for our salvation. You see, Yeshua is our only entrance into the tabernacle and into the presence of Father Yahweh. And there's no other way to move beyond the veil. And remember, remember what our theme is for this year. It is beyond the veil. Why beyond the veil? Because we want to be in the presence of God. We want to be in the Holy of Holies. We want to be in the throne room of God. Well, that's where I want to be. Don't know about you. But when we leave this life, where are we going to be? In the presence of God. We're going to be in the presence of Father in His throne room. And then we see this veil. We need to move beyond this veil. And this veil is very significant. Because entering through the veil means that you find yourself in the most holy place and in the presence of God. Because it is only when we go beyond the veil that we actually enter into God's presence. To enter into the presence of Father requires that you and I need to be holy. The Word tells us that we need to be holy. There's a word that is used that in the New Testament it says... We need to be sanctified. There's a process of sanctification. That process of sanctification means that we need to become holy before God. In Leviticus 11 verse 45, Father clearly states, He says, You shall be holy for I am holy. This is repeated in Leviticus 19 verse 2. But you know what the most amazing thing about this is? Is that Peter repeats it. And when we read 1 Peter 1 verse 15 to 16, Peter says this. He says, but as he which has called you is holy, so be you holy in all manner of conversation. Now that is an interesting word in the, in the, in the, old, or in the King James. Because sometimes we read something in all manner of conversation and we don't really understand what is being said there. You know, does it mean that only when I talk I need to be holy? No, when we look at the word. And that word as I've uh, put it on the, on the board for you, is the word anastrophe. And that word anastrophe means behavior, conduct, manner of life. So when we read this and we look at this, he says, so be you holy in all manner of conversation, behavior, conduct, and manner of life. And then in verse 16, he says, because it is written, be you holy for I am holy. It is a requirement of God, that we need to live a life of sanctification, that we need to become holy. And when we look at this, we can see that Peter is clearly quoting Leviticus 11, verse 45 and, and 19, verse 2. So when we look at, at Leviticus, the words that Father spoke in Leviticus still applies to every believer today. And you know what is amazing to me, and, and I just want to read, maybe I don't have it on the board for you, but what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read it to you. And this to me is absolutely amazing. In Leviticus 19, verse 2, maybe I'll read verse 1 and 2 because it is so important. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This is not an option. This is a command. If we want to be in the presence of God, we need to be holy. Do you know this, this portion of the Bible, Leviticus 19, is probably one of the most controversial chapters in the whole Bible. Most people hate it. Do you know why? Because Leviticus 19 says, you are not to have any tattoos. It's 
not me. It's what the Bible says. But you see, we don't understand why God says that to us. Because this is very important. Because in Leviticus 19 verse 2, it says, Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Then it says that we've got to love our neighbor like we love ourselves. A commandment that Yeshua quoted also comes from Leviticus 19. And then we've got this hated scripture that says you're not allowed to have any tattoos. I'm not going to talk about tattoos this morning. Don't worry about it. But it is important that we need to understand that when we enter into the presence of God, there needs to be a holiness around us so that we can have an intimate relationship with Him. And what does it mean to be holy? Being holy is the sanctification by the Holy Spirit. It's not something that you can do by yourself. It needs to be guided by the Holy Spirit. And we need the Word of God to show us what holiness actually means, what righteousness actually means. And therefore, every believer needs to be sanctified by dedicating yourself to Father. That is how we start the process, through dedication. Last Sunday, I had a whole sermon just about dedication, what it means to be dedicated to God. And therefore, I'm not going to revisit that, that teaching. You can go and listen. It's, it's on the website. You can go and li listen to that teaching on YouTube, on our YouTube channel. But your life, as we've read earlier, we, it's still on the board. Your behavior, your conduct, your manner of life. Your life and your behavior should reflect the character and the holiness of Abba and the holiness of Yeshua and should match your profession of your faith. Because if we say that we believe in God, if we say, say that we believe the Word of God, it needs to show. We need to bear the fruit thereof. It is reflected through our character and the fruit that we bear. Getting rid of all the sin and any imperfection so that we can worship Father in spirit and truth. We sang a song earlier, holiness. We need to worship Him in holiness. In the Old Testament, the high priest was the only one that could enter beyond the veil. Only once he was sanctified. Only once he was cleansed. He couldn't do that unless he was clean and holy before God. So God took something that was physical so that we can understand it in the spirit. But Yeshua is our high priest. And he has made it possible for you and I to enter through the veil. That torn veil that was torn the day that he died on the cross. He has now made access to, uh, for you and I so that we can enter through the veil, that torn veil, that we can enter into the presence of God. In Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16, there are two, two portions of Hebrews that I'm going to read to you here, um, two, two different portions. But let's look at the first section, Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16. It says, seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, that is Yeshua, he says, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. What is that profession that he's talking about? Our profession of faith. Verse 15, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our uh, infirm uh, infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There is only one way that you can enter into the holies of holies, into the presence of God. It's through the cleansing blood of Yeshua. Because that's why he shed his blood, so that you and I can be cleansed and we can be clean from all sin, that all our sins could be forgiven. In Hebrews 10, verse 19 to 22, it says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. He says, by a new and a living way. What is he talking about? What is this new and living way? They all knew how to get to the temple. and They all knew how to get to the tabernacle. You had to enter through the way. 
And now he says there is a new way. What is this new way? It is Yeshua. It is Jesus Christ. Now we can enter through a new and a living way because he is alive. He was resurrected from the dead. He says, which he has consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So his body, his flesh represented the veil. And when his body was torn for you and I, he got rid of the veil. It opened up so that you and I can enter freely into the presence of God. Verse 21, he says, and having a high priest over the house of God. What is the house of God? The tabernacle, the temple, you and I. We are now the house of God. The congregation, the church is now the house of God. Not a building. People. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart. This is talking about holiness. In full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water sanctification. That is what that points to. You know, the sprinkling of the blood is an interesting thing. He says that our hearts need to be sprinkled from an evil conscience. And when we look at what happened, when the high priest on the day of, of atonement, which is known in, in the Hebrew as Yom Kippur, on the day of atonement, when he slaughtered the animal, he took the blood of the animal after he cleansed himself, let me read this to you just, just quickly so that you can see this. Sorry, I, I, I haven't got this on, on, on the slides, but I'm going to read this to you. Leviticus 16. Let me, let me just read this to you quickly. You can follow in your own Bibles. Listen to this. Leviticus 16, verse 2, 3, and 6. Listen to this. And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to Aaron, your brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the, the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. So he needs to be cleansed. Verse 3 says, Thus shall Aaron come unto the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering, and a ram for a burnt offering. So in other words, what did he need to do? What did Aaron do when he slaughtered the animal? First, a bullock for himself, that is a bull, like a cow. <laughs> and what he did is he slaughtered it, he took the blood, he went into the Holy of Holies, and he sprinkled the blood onto the mercy seat that was inside the Holy of Holies. His heart sprinkled that mercy seat becomes the throne room, or is the throne room of God. Your heart becomes the throne room of God, and your heart needs to be sprinkled with the blood so that we can be cleansed and we can be holy. And then he says here in verse 6, he says this. He says, And Aaron on shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for the house. He needed to be cleansed. He needed to be washed. He needed to be clean. It is important that we see that. And when this, this scripture talks about a heart sprinkled from an evil conscience, it means it, it references the sprinkling of the blood on the mercy seat so that the sin can disappear. And our bodies need to be washed with pure water. What is that pure water? The Word of God. So we need to go through a process of sanctification. Now, what happens once we've done that? We are in the Holy of Holies. We are beyond the veil. We are entering into life. And we are entering into the presence of Father Yahweh. Does that mean that we are sinless? Nope. <laughs> we are not perfect. God knows that. We're not sinless, but it means that the believer is walking so close to Father Yahweh that any known sin is quickly confessed, it is repented, it is forgiven, and we are cleansed. 
And isn't that what John said to us in 1 John, 7, uh, 1, John 1 verse 7 to 9, especially verse 9. We all know the verse in, in 1, John's, uh, 1, 1 John 1 verse 9 where he says, If we confess our sins, he, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there's a process. We need to confess our sins. Does Father not know what our sins are? Of course He does. Why do we have to confess our sins? He wants you to take responsibility. He wants you to be accountable. He wants you to recognize that you're a sinner and there's a need for salvation. And that only He, through the blood of Yeshua, can cleanse you from that sin. That's why He wants you to confess your sins. Because He is just. And he is faithful. And therefore, we, when we confess our sins, he forgives it. He forgives us our sins. So the guideline to enter into the presence of Father is given to us in Psalm 100. This is a wonderful psalm, and I was smiling as we were worshiping before, before the, the message this morning. And I leaned over to Sonia, and I said, Ernie picked some songs that is absolutely 100% in line with the word this morning. We sang of holiness. We sang of worship. We sang of praise. And let me read you this. It's a, it's a short psalm. Uh, uh, it's, not, it's not like Psalm 119. This is just Psalm 100. Only five verses. But I want to read these five verses to you because they are so profound. They are so important to you and I. Listen to what it says. It says, a psalm of praise. Isn't that beautiful? A psalm of praise. Make a joyful noise. Let me tell you, when you understand the meaning of this in Hebrew, it is not singing like this. It is a joyful noise that we need to make. We need to sing it out. Get it out of your system. He says, make a joyful noise unto Yahweh, all you lands. When he talks about the lands, he also talks about not just the land, the word eretz, eretz means also the people of the land, so all the people. Serve Yahweh with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know you that Yahweh, he is God. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pastor. This is beautiful. From verse 4, he says, Enter into the gates. And that gates, when we talk about that, is when we looked at the tabernacle, remember, there's the way, the first gate, and then there's the second gate into the holy place, and then there's the third gate, which is the veil in front of the Holy of Holies. He says, enter. In, where am I now? Enter, verse 4. Enter into the gates with thanksgiving and into, the, into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name, for Yahweh is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endures to all generations. Amen. How do we enter? Into Father's presence? With praise, with worship, with a clean heart, we enter into his presence. And it is through our praise that we, that we create a holy place where, where Father, who is holy, can dwell amongst us. And by entering the Holy of Holies, we find two more pieces of furniture inside the Holy of Holies. We see the Ark of the Covenant, and then we see the mercy seat that was placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And it is through, if, if you look at this, this, whole, this whole picture, I just want you to picture this. When you, when you enter in, you see these, these two pieces. It looks like one, but it's not one. It is actually two pieces. And it is through true and faithful worship that we are invited beyond the veil to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth and in the beauty of His holiness. It is beyond the veil that we find the Ark of the Covenant which is also known as the Ark of the Testimony. We see the mercy seat or the throne of God. And that was placed upon the Ark of the Testimony. We see in Exodus 25, uh, 25 verse 21, and it says, And you shall put the mercy seat above upon the Ark, and in the Ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. 
And that testimony is the testimony of who God is. And when we testify, we testify of who Yeshua is and who God is. Our biggest testimony that you and I can have is the testimony of who He is. Because He says, the Holy Spirit will testify of me. And therefore, you and I, when we testify, we need to testify of Him. When we look at this testimony that was placed in the Ark of the Covenant, we see that it was the covenant. It was the Ten Commandments that was written in stone. And inside that Ark of the Covenant, there were also placed a golden pot containing manna, as well as Aaron's rod that budded. And we all know the story about how the next morning, this dead piece of wood suddenly had flowers and leaves on it. Isn't that amazing? And when we read in the New Testament again in Hebrews, the content of the Ark of the Covenant is confessed by Paul in his letter to the Hebrews. And he says in Hebrews 9 verse 3 to 5, it says this, and after the second veil, that second veil, now, now just, so we've got the entrance to the tabernacle, then we get to the first veil that allows you in, entry into the holy place, and then the second veil is the one that allows us entr uh, entry into, into the holy of holies. So he says, and after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round, uh, round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot and had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory, showing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. He says, we cannot go into detail about that right now. But I can, and I can show you the detail of what it actually means. I think it's time that we understand this. And each of these three things within the ark represented man's inability to do anything right without abiding in Yeshua, without abiding in God. Because we cannot do the right things unless we are in Him and He is in us. So they represent the entire spectrum of man's rejection of Father, as was illustrated by Israel's rebellion against Father while they were in, in the wilderness. And we, we know that because He leads them out of Egypt into the wilderness and they, when they stand in front of, the, of Mount Sinai, guess what they do? They rebel against God immediately. And you would think, why would they actually do that? It is in man's nature to do that. So what do we see here? Israel rebelled against his provision. So we're talking about the manna in the golden, in the golden pot. They, they rebelled against his provision, which is represented by that manna. And when we look at the manna that was in the ark, now you must remember that that manna was in that ark for a very, very, very long time, many, many, many years, and it never went bad. It never went off, never became stale or rotten or anything. It was in there. And symbolically, Father has made provision by giving the, uh, the or incorruptible bread of life to you and I. And that incorruptible bread is Yeshua, and it is His word of truth, because it is spoken of. Yeshua said, I am the bread of life. And when, it's, when we speak about the, the bread that we need to take in, it talks about the word of God. So we see these two things. And who is Yeshua? He is the word of God. So in John 6, verse 32 to 35, we read, Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Who is that true bread? So what does the manna point to? It points to Yeshua. He is the bread of life. He says, For the bread of God is He which comes down from heaven and gives life unto the world. And isn't that amazing? When they got up the next morning, the manna was on the, on the ground. All they had to do was gather it. Yeshua came from heaven. He was given to you and I. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. But however, however, sinful man continues to, re to reject God's true bread of life. And it is this golden pot of manna that represents Father's provision of man's needs as well as His promises and His blessings that He has given to us. 
But Israel also rebelled against God's appointed leadership. They rebelled against the priests who God placed in, in leadership. They rebelled against Moses. They rebelled against Aaron. But there was judgment. So when we look at Aaron's rod, it also represents the judgment of God as well as his appointed leadership. And the miracle was that a dead piece of wood started budding. It came to life. And in that process, what does God show us? That death is defeated. Death is defeated through the absolute leadership of God. And what is the absolute leadership of God? It is Jesus Christ. It is Yeshua HaMessiah. And how do we know that? Because he says, all authority was given to me. The fullness of the leadership of God was given to Yeshua. And the rod of Aaron was caused to bud and produce blossoms and almonds overnight to show that Father had appointed Aaron and his descendants to be the priests. And symbolically, it indicates that Father has all the authority and can bring life from death. And that is what he has done for every human being. You and I are dead in the spirit because of sin. But through his son, the rod of Jesse, and it is so amazing when you read Isaiah and it talks about the one that will come from the rod. He is called the rod of Jesse. When you look at the meaning of Jesse, it means I possess. So it comes through the one who is who is God's possession. He is his only begotten son. He belongs to Father. And he was given to you and I. And through him, you and I are reborn into true life. John 10 verse 10, Yeshua says, The thief comes, but, but, uh, comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. And then he says, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So that we can experience true life through Yeshua in Abba Father. And the rod also represents Father's perfect and righteous judgment and His authority. That is what that rod represents as a second, second thing. And however, sinful man continues to reject that authority and the life given through the blood of Yeshua. And we can see it. All you have to do is look at what is happening in the world today. Even in countries like America, and most people think that, that America is this amazing, religious, God-serving country, but it's not. It is trying to ban the Bible from schools. Well, it has done so already. It is actually trying to ban the Word of God from all walks of life. You're not allowed to talk about Yeshua. You're not allowed to talk about God to anybody. You see, we are rejecting His Word. We are rejecting His authority. We are rejecting His truth. But there is only one truth, and that is Yeshua and the Word of God. So what did we, do we see about, about Israel? They rebelled against that authority. They rebelled against Father's instructions. And now when we look at this, we see that the instructions, well, what was the instructions? It is the Ten Commandments. It was written in stone. It was written on the tablets, and the tablets were placed within the Ark of the Covenant. But Israel rebelled against Father's instructions, and still today man rebels against his commandments. We don't like it, as I mentioned earlier, especially not Leviticus 19. We continuously hear that we are no longer obliged to keep Father's word. You know, I speak to so many people, and they, they are believers. I'm not talking about atheists or any other religion. I'm talking about believers, and when you talk to them about the Old Testament, and you talk to them about Father's instructions, they say, well, we're no longer obliged to do that, which is strange to me, because Yeshua clearly indicated that we should do so. If you love me, you will what? You will keep my commandments. So Father has given us His instructions to lead us into understanding our need for salvation. If we don't have His Word and we don't have His instructions, we will never understand this road to salvation. 
2 Timothy 3, Paul writes this. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 to 17, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? He says, That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now let me just tell you something very important. When Paul wrote here, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, there was no New Testament. There was only what we know today as the Old Testaments, the scrolls of God. There wasn't a New Testament. He was, started, he was busy writing it. Because what they did is they took all these letters and they put them together and they made that the New Testament. What a wonderful thing for you and I that we can have their testimony, that we can read the New Testament. But when Paul is referring, what Paul is, uh, Paul is referring to here, these scriptures are the Old Testament. He says that was given to us for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And then we, uh, no, we don't have to worry about the Old Testament anymore. It's worthless. No, it's not. It is extremely important. Let me tell you, the more I read the Old Testament, the more I understand the New Testament. And please do not separate the two. You cannot only study the Old Testament. You've got to see it as one book. So the Bible is relevant to you and I from Genesis 1 right up to Revelation 22. You cannot separate the two. I, I once, there's a little page in the Bible that says New Testament. Have you seen that little page? It's a blank page. It says New Testament. So I, once, while I was doing a sermon, I actually tore that out of the Bible. There is no separation. It is the only Word of God, the entire Word of God, and we've got to study it likewise. What's amazing to me is when we look at the tablets, so what was placed in the Ark of the Covenant? The unbroken second set of tablets. Remember what happened. Moses went up the mountain, came down with the tablets. What did he do? He broke them. Why? Because they have made, Israel made a golden calf, and they were doing what? They were worshiping the calf. I can just imagine the anger that he must have had to break those two stone tablets. But it was broken, so what do we see? The second set of tablets of stone on which the Ten Commandments were written represents Yeshua. Because he never broke the law. Because he is the law. And, and we've got this contrast, and what we are seeing here is that sin, the sin of Israel, sin broke the commandments. It broke the first set of tablets. Then Father gave us who? Yeshua, the second set of tablets. The same, the same instructions. He didn't write something new on the second set of tablets. It was exactly the same words. Yeshua is the word of God. We need to follow him. We need to follow his word. Because it is through our sin that we break the commandments of God in our lives. And what is true in this world today even, it was true for Israel, it is still true for you and I, is that sinful man continues to reject God's law. And therefore we don't fully understand the need for salvation by grace and faith. Because salvation can only come by grace and faith, not by the law. It only tells us what we need to do. The law was never given to save anybody. It was given as instruction. It is only the blood of the Lamb that can save you. Not a Lamb, the Lamb. And that is Yeshua, that is Jesus Christ. There is no other way that it can be established. So in rejecting Father's law, we actually reject Yeshua because He is the Word of God. And I've mentioned this many times before. Revelation 19 verse 13 says, And He, this is Yeshua, He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and His name is called the Word of God. That's who He is. The final item that we see in the Holy of Holies is the mercy seat. And I, I can tell you, we can probably do just 
three or four services just on the Holy of Holies. So I've tried to reduce it and give you some tidbits of information with regards to this. I want you to go and study this by yourself. Now we see this mercy seat. It is only on the mercy seat that the Shekinah glory of Father Yahweh manifested. Because he says to Moses, from, from the, between the, the, the two cherubims that was, on, that was placed on the mercy seat, he says, I will speak to you. And it is upon this mercy seat that the blood of atonement was sprinkled to atone for the sins of man. It was upon this mercy seat that the two cherubims spread their wings, just like we read about the throne of God in the Bible. In Revelation 4, John comes and he describes the throne room of Father, and he mentions the living creatures with their wings surrounding the throne. And it is very similar to what we read in the, in the book of Ezekiel, in Ezekiel's vision, when he describes the throne of God with the cherubim. God says to Moses, place the cherubim on the mercy seat, because it represented his throne. And then Father Yahweh gave Moses instructions regarding the mercy seat in Exodus 25, verse 21 to 22. Listen to what he says. He says, and you shall put the mercy seat, and that word mercy seat in the Hebrew is the word kapureth. It means a covering. So you shall put the mercy seat or the covering above upon the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. And there I will meet with you. Where? The mercy seat. And there I will meet with you. And I will commune with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give you in commandment unto the children of Israel. He says, where will I speak with you? From amongst the cherubim, from the mercy seat. That is my throne. I will speak to you from there. Because when a king made certain commandments, he always did it from the chair that he was sitting from his throne. And Father is the King of Kings. And it's quite interesting, this word kapureth, which means covering, it comes from the same root word as the word kafar. And that word kafar means atonement. So when he talks about the mercy seat, he is referencing atonement because it comes from the same root, uh, root word. So the mercy seat was the covering of the sins of man through the blood of the Lamb. It was the place of forgiveness. It was the place of restitution. It was the place of our atonement. That is what it represented to you and I. And Yeshua is our atonement. And it was His perfect blood that was shed for us so that we can be restored to Father, so that our relationship with Father could be restored. And yes, it is true that Father's throne is also the throne of judgment because He will judge. At the end of time, he will judge from his throne. But the most important aspect to, to you and I, to us as believers, is that it is the place of our refuge. It's where we want to be. In the throne room, throne room of God. We want to sit in front of his throne. We want to be in his presence. We want to listen to his voice. We want to be in relationship with him. It is only in this place that we can do that. You see, because this place is the place of intimacy with Father. It is the place of his perfect love for you and I. And it is here where Yeshua presented his blood as an everlasting sacrifice and atonement for our sins. We see this in 1 John 4 verse 9 to 10. It says, in this was manifested the love of God towards us. Because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that He might live through Him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation also means the atoning sacrifice. So when I read this again, it says but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So Yeshua entered into the throne room in heaven to present His blood before Father. In Hebrews 9 verse 11 to 12, it says, But Christ being, uh, but Christ being come a, a high priest of a good things to come. Let me just put my glasses on. This sounds weird. 
But, but Christ being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place. And that word, if you look at it in the Greek, it actually means the holiest place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. So what did he do? He went to sprinkle his blood at the throne of God in heaven. Remember when Mary came to the grave? She saw Yeshua standing. She walked up to him and she fell before him and he said, don't touch me. I have not been to my father. Go and tell the disciples. So once he's been to his father, after he gave his blood, his living blood, because that is why, that's why it's an atonement forever. Because it's his living blood that he gave to, to, to Father Yahweh. And then only did he appear to his disciples. You see, Father, who is the righteous judge, took upon himself the penalty of man. And we are judged guilty because we are guilty of sin. And he did this so that man can have grace and that he can show us mercy. In his mercy, he provided whatever was needed to restore, to heal, to rescue, to protect, and to save us. So Father has paid the penalty for our sins at the cross of Calvary. And based on this, his mercy is extended to all of us. And therefore, the judgment seat became the mercy seat. The tabernacle has become the pattern of our salvation. It has become the pattern of God's love for you and I. That perfect, amazing love that He has for us. And Yeshua, He is the living tabernacle. And He came to fulfill Father's will for man so that His relationship with you and I could be restored so that we can have an intimate relationship with Father through the sacrifices made by Yeshua the Word of God, His everlasting Son. That's why we read in the Word that He is the King of Kings. He's our ultimate High Priest. And He called you and I to be kings of, of, and priests for God. And therefore, May we continue to praise and to honor and to worship the King of Kings who has reflected to us through the pattern that God has created from the beginning. Amen. Father, we thank you this morning, Lord, for your grace and mercy. Because if it wasn't for your grace and your mercy, we would not exist. Thank you, Lord. That instead of giving us a throne of judgment, you gave us a throne of mercy. You have provided us with your grace. And it is because of that that we can enter into the holy of holies. And with boldness, we can come before your, grace, your throne of grace. Thank you that Yeshua came to cleanse us, that through His blood, and through Your Holy Spirit, You have made us holy so we can stand in Your presence. Father, as we lift up our voices now, praise and honor and worship You, we bring You our sacrifice, our offer of holiness. And we thank you in the mighty name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.